Unfortunately, as each thing gives way, another monopoly forms. So I was very naive at the time. I thought we were going to have a utopian uh, you know, society where anyone could be a, an artist and upload your content and everybody can earn money and no longer will a few big celebrities and blockbuster you know, artists get all of the monetization. But instead, we ended up with Netflix, Spotify, and, and the, the next you know, iteration of platforms, YouTube, which still kind of leads to these winner-take-all effects of you know, a few huge name streamers and gigantic YouTube channels, and then everybody else is like called a long tail where you just get a few hundred clicks or reviews for your content. So obviously, you know, we didn't solve for this problem the way that I thought we were going to kind of open up. It has helped a lot more people to become creators. But on the flip side of that, there's infinite amount of content production because cost goes to zero of making content. So therefore, you'll just have an infinite amount and then you divide that by a finite number of humans that can consume it and pay for it. That basically means everyone will go to zero. You'll always earn zero over time. There's not a business model at the end of the day. You're not going to be able to monetize the content because we've created more novel content in the last you know, three months or whatever than in the previous 500 years of human recorded history. So it's exponentially increasing. And then we have to figure out there's only so much you'll ever be able to watch in your finite lifespan. Um, so that's kind of where I was clued into this world and ended up connecting to Bitcoin because it was announced on this same mailing list that had been cataloging all kinds of novel emerging attempts to do open source models in the real world. For example, there are people trying to do an open source car where they were going to release the first you know, designs where you could build your own car and try to challenge the proprietary you know, model of Ford and Toyota that you know, just makes this you know, for over 100 years since Henry Ford launched the Model T, right? This has been the, that industry was consolidated and then you've got your dealerships that receive inventory from the manufacturers and sell it at the you know, suggested manufacturer's price, right? So there's this whole vision for how do we democratize all of these different areas of innovation and basically break open the, the whole tool chain to where we're liberated from this kind of model of predatory, you know, capitalism or, you know, neo-feudalism, which has been kind of unfolding over the last 50 years we've watched, you know, and again, a lot of that actually has to do with going off the gold standard. And as I didn't connect until a bit later when I got more into Bitcoin and saw all of these things also converging to, you know, what happened in 1971. So that's why I originally got exposed to Bitcoin, but I kind of dismissed it at the time. I had been looking at lots of different currencies. People were um, designing many implementations of alternative um, local currencies, things like time dollars, which had been in, the use, in use since the 1980s. Um, local exchange trading systems is another LETS, is the abbreviation for that. And so these kinds of things have been attempted for decades where businesses and other communities will create their own social mutual credit uh, where you can have a tab at this business, just like your bar tab now, right? That we, okay. And so people have been experimenting with trying to scale that in different, different ledger systems, which would be kept in local currency, only redeemable for goods and services in that um, local economy so that you can't have predatory kind of outside speculators coming in, bidding up. So again, a lot of these ideas, a very rich tradition of this. And then Bitcoin happened to come along. At the time, I thought you would need something more flexible supply that could be probably expanded and contracted 
which is why I didn't get it originally. I was thinking, why do you want to make something that's artificially digitally scarce? Because I was very much against digital scarcity in terms of copyright and and how the you know they're basically using that to abuse the customers and control how we can share because I'm against these you know predatory monopolists. So it didn't quite click for me until later. I kept looking back at Bitcoin and saw that it had gone way up in price in 2013, and I almost jumped in, and then I finally got in in 2017. But then even then, I just got a couple of Bitcoin and. That was as much as I had, and then I thought I missed it, right? Because it ran quickly up from $2,500 to $10,000, and we're at $20,000. But I just kept accumulating and continued to average in and then just buy more and more as I got more familiar with it and more obsessed and confident that it was going to completely, you know, take over and become the reserve currency layer of the planet. Um, and so eventually I came across one episode with Dan Held, and I think. Peter McCormick on one of the podcasts where Dan was talking about the energy commodity and the fact that Bitcoin is an energy currency. And again, I had looked at all of these in 2008. That was one of the proposals for some of the people on this mailing list also trying to design currencies and we should just have an energy dollar or dollar backed uh, by electricity. And it turns out that had been floated in like the 1920s by Henry Ford at the time, but just not implemented. So once I got that, I was like, okay, yeah, I get it. Really, is that Bitcoin is going to become this energy-backed currency unit? And then I basically went all in on it, managed to sell everything else, any other kind of stocks or assets I had, and just put all available reserves into Bitcoin. Um, so that was sort of a little bit of my background on that. But um, again, and then the biotech stuff, same trajectory. I got really obsessed with biotechnology and life sciences because I learned that we were digitizing biology, we were reading DNA, sequencing human genome, um, getting cheaper and cheaper, even faster than what had happened in Moore's law, which drove computer costs to decrease so drastically over a 30 year period that we could all have personal computers and then eventually smartphones that everybody carries around. That's a few hundred dollars that is like a supercomputer of the 1970s and 80s, right? And so you understand that cost curve is applying to life itself, our own, right? That's me on Twitter. So it, it's really mind blowing. If you understand the most important thing there is that we are, we are all made up of, you know, trillions of cells. The biggest thing on earth is programming life, the, the, the ability to actually hack biology. Um, and so therefore it's imperative on us to challenge these big monopoly entities, whether it's Monsanto, which famously has kind of consolidated a lot of the seeds in the world and created these terminator seeds where they sell back the seeds to the farmers who in many cases, these farmers created a lot of these seeds over hundreds mm -hmm. of years of collaborative agriculture. So the history of agriculture has been kind of this consolidation where big multinationals have come in and now they'll sell you this seed that's programmed to die and only to work with their proprietary Roundup or their, their pesticide. So it's dependent on that. And it's very, very bad for the monoculture. So it creates these few breeds that it's very vulnerable to anything that could go wrong if we have a bad pest or an outbreak. Mm -hmm. So it's highly dangerous, right? So that, this was part of this vision I learned about people who are saying we should bring open source models and principles into biotech into agriculture into the life sciences and what does that look like right and we've of course now seen how significant all this is with the COVID-19 pandemic and what happens there is that you know we grant these outrageous uh, monopolies to Pfizer and Moderna and they, they have succeeded in unprecedented you know contracts that they were able to force through with governments where they have no liability for anything that happens. They got all this. Pfizer didn't directly take the money from the government, but it's like even worse. They, they were very strategic and conniving about that. Um, but, you know, they said a bunch of nonsense about how uh, they were pretending they were going to pledge to uh, not enforce patents on this and make sure they made it available in the, in Africa and developing countries. And of course, as soon as, 
you know, the immediacy was passed. They have reneged on that and gone about their usual tactics of the pharmaceutical industry. Do this. So that's kind of where I got involved 15 years ago or a little more than that now on this biohacking movement where we're trying to make it accessible and make the tools, the instruments, the equipment cheaper, uh, people building their own versions of, of lab equipment at home. If you needed to do a PCR test, you can run your own PCR at your house, right? The tools are actually inexpensive to do this. It's just a heating element and you can do your own swab. In principle, we could all have access to this technology already. Um, the first antibody and tests and stuff were done in the 1970s, like the first at-home test is the, is the pregnancy test, right? That was approved. So it's really kind of another example of outrageous example that we didn't have ubiquitous, super inexpensive antibody testing already, you know, available for things like COVID. We knew this was going to come along, um, but the way that industry is structured, it's regulated in a way that makes things needlessly expensive and each new test that's developed, you got to spend, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to validate something that's essentially just a recipe for the molecular reagents. And this technique is the same from flu to COVID to herpes to HIV, whatever you want to test for. You've just got a set of, of primers, right? So this is a whole other area that's totally screwed up, you know, kind of molecular diagnostics. Um, but again, the common trend is, you know, I've, I've been trying to work with the different innovators and inventors and entrepreneurs that, that want to disrupt these monopolies and, and uh, you know, empower people with new kinds of business models that don't, don't rely on, uh, you know, controlling supply chains and competition yeah. and allowing competition instead of these monopolies. Right? I feel like I'm interviewing Michael Saylor right now. Because <laughs> you could say one word and then right, Michael so Saylor can, it can just flow. He just he got his goes. He's got days. so much information and it's <laughs> no, I know. Yeah, so, yeah, Joseph. Joseph is the same. He's got so much information that he mm -hmm. can just keep going yeah. and going and yeah, going. Which is it's a beautiful thing. thing. It is. This no. is what we yeah. need. We need people to to talk and to put themselves yeah. out there and say, "Hey, yeah. this is what's going on." Right. So we appreciate yeah. that. But There's a million. This Go is ahead. the problem. It's like Bitcoin, it's not going to just be Bitcoin. You've got all these parallel movements that people need to know about. And unfortunately, sometimes the Bitcoin maximalist or parts of the Bitcoin community is not as curious as they need to be about certain things. And I get it's and it's painful for me to watch because then the, the Ethereum people end up jumping on to some of this yeah. stuff. And I'm like, oh, that's not the right foundation. No. It's, it's not the no. solid foundation. Right. Uh, there is this thing they're calling DSI, decentralized science, right, which mm -hmm. is quite interesting to me. This is actually important, but it tends to be all these crypto people are coming over and then they're trying to create these like NFTs to fund science and grants. And these are not bad ideas. Some of them are interesting ideas, but again, it's, it's built on this foundation of sand that's going to lead to ruin. Uh, and that's a frustrating thing for me because I'm like, we need to, the Bitcoiners need to be paying attention to some of these other adjacent causes. Like for example, scientific publishing that you may or may not be aware of, right? It is owned by a couple of companies. Elsevier owns all of the, basically like 70% of all scientific publications in the world go through this horrible monopolistic company. It's worse than Microsoft was in the height of Microsoft's abuses in the nineties with, with, you know, the windows and bundling it. Right. And so for 20 years, we've been challenging the for-profit scientific monopoly oligopoly journals. They started in the early 2000s trying to create this alternative called open access publishing. But basically what happens today is that we all pay for scientific research with our tax dollars, and then it's sold back to us where none of us can access the article unless we pay $25 to get a little subscription per article, right? Mm -hmm. right? And so it's a big racket because most of the scientists are conscripted into doing it for free. They have to review articles, peer review, as part of their career obligations and for reputation rewards. And then these publishers are selling back the access at this giant markup. And you know, especially a problem for developing countries. But since around 2011, there's a site called SciHub that was started by this girl in Kazakhstan. And she just started uploading every PDF of every journal, every article in the world. 
uh, for free so you can access it. Of course, they've got an injunction against her. They've tried to shut that down. Prior to this, they did shut down this one kid, killed himself in 2013. Aaron Schwartz was a campaigner for open knowledge, free culture. He was really tied in with uh, actually a lot of these heavy hitting intellectuals out of MIT. He was a research fellow there. And he went in at um, MIT and connected to a server and started offloading and pirating all of the journals to make it available, you know, as a part of this thing as being a crusader for freedom of information. And what happens is some hot and, you know, some ambitious uh, attorney general decides to make a career out of him, his case. It was an Obama administration appointee. She like throws the book at him. He's facing this ridiculous sentence, you know, life in jail, some absurd thing just for copyright infringement, right? And they're trying to throw these crimes of like computer hacking or something at, against him, which is totally inappropriate. So he eventually hanged himself because in, MIT threw him under the bus, did not go to bat for him and aggressively defend him, which they could have done as an institution that has billions of dollars of endowment, right? And these are big name professors and other people that were kind of, you know, all part of it. He was, he was on the board of some of these things. Actually, he was a co-founder of Reddit um, earlier too. So Aaron Schwartz, you can look him, look him up. Um, but this happens every time. This is what we always do to everybody, whether it's Eric, um, where it's Snowden or Assange or any, anybody that dares to poke the dragon or the bear mm -hmm. as much. We basically martyr them, kill them, imprison them. Uh, that's why you either have to be like Satoshi be anonymous or you've got to get out of here to some jurisdiction yeah. yeah where you can't be isn't so yeah so that's kind of you know again another thing and so this is something bitcoiners need to kind of know about just these different ideological roots of the movement and these other battles going on in adjacent domains um you know curiously like brian armstrong the coinbase founder has been funding his own like platform for doing scientific journals and peer review but again it's like there's this vacuum and if we're we're not in it the other shit corners and people will all will be doing their own uh, right you know, version this is why i i try to kind of get bitcoin people to understand there's other things like the 3d printing guns right so sometimes there's some overlap between that people probably right. aware of the, the ghost guns and the, what's the guy's name cody is, is the guy's name anyway he's been for years getting all kinds of media attraction and negative mm -hmm. attention from, from law enforcement on this issue of you know is it first amendment for me to share a design a cad computer assisted design file of a gun right and you push a button and send that through the internet and there's no way to censor that no way to stop it so you've got both first amendment and second amendment kind of together intertwined um, so we have to think strategically about all of this in a systemic way so that you've got this uncensorable infrastructure, mm -hmm. you got your money system, your monetary <clears throat> protocol, to big mm -hmm. one here. And then you're going to have your other, other protocol for exchanging designs yep. uh, um, and files. So yeah. nobody can. Yeah, anyway. And then, I mean, it just goes on and on. There's right. all this stuff going on about yeah. farming permaculture i think yeah. bitcoiners are getting interested in agriculture now and mm -hmm. yes. sustainable farming so we've got to kind of build these links yes. and alliances between different communities and all kind Bridges, of together. right on the foundation of a yeah. solid money on a solid value system you're 100 right and in, and you even mentioned the example of it we got off a call with uh texas slim and it's just one of the many examples, pretty much any system, you were talking a lot about pharma and medicine and all the things that you're an expert in, all the fields, um, they're all corrupted. All the incentives are misaligned. So uh, we want to bring it back to, the, we, can't re, we can't fix the current system. The current system is, is uh, foobard. So it's fucked up beyond saving. So we're going to have to start out on a new system, peer-to-peer, I was mentioning Texas Slim. We just got off a call with him, Jed and I, because we want to make those connections here. And that's just one of many uh, platforms that we need to put on this level on the on the Bitcoin base layer, the foundation of Bitcoin, which is a solid monetary structure. And we want to go peer to peer. We don't need we need to bypass all the uh, incentives that are jacked up all the different government regulations, all those entities, the current banking system, and just go from 
just the beef producer straight to the consumer. We don't need to mess with all the rest. And that's just an example of one of the very many platforms that we need to fix so that we can realign the incentives in this country. So instead of us trying to make money for you know the shareholder or for the few, it's what's in the best interest of humanity going forward. And so we definitely follow and, and echo everything you're saying. Um, Mm-hmm. My recording missed a bunch of the uh, of the start of this, so hopefully Jed's got it. But um, I think people caught on that you're a biotech guy. You own uh, some lab buildings, and you're a Harvard guy, which you're, you know, you've been um, pretty modest about. So basically, I just wanted to lay the foundation of this guy knows what he's talking about. He's well studied, well researched. Uh, we've had in depth well, conversations yeah. on all yeah, sorts of things I'll, from I'll go, go back. Ahead. Um, a little bit on that, you know, I talk, talk about this in some of my other interviews and stuff I've done and I had a little podcast for a while myself too, but I had kind of a mind fuck when I was at Harvard, the whole experience was devastating in different ways because I didn't know what I was in for. I built up a false view of what I thought was some kind of meritocracy or something that I was going to join, which was maybe this utopian place and it turned out to be this hellish sort of um breeding ground for neuroticism and totally miserable depressed uh people and some of that's what you bring into it you know bring your stuff in there with you but in retrospect you know i i don't know but it it kind of shook my worldview to the point where you know a lot of what i've done ever since then was trying to push back against that system that I experienced where they just don't give a shit about anybody that's there. Everybody in there is like climbing for elite status. And most people are burning out. We had one of my classmates killed himself right before graduation, but that's not infrequent. There's several suicides a year, every year it's been going on for decades and every, they, they have, you know, big scandals about it every so often and nothing ever changes. And, and we just kind of keep going into this model of higher education, which is a complete scam. Um, I ended up becoming a mentor for Agreed. one of the first batch of this thing called the 20 under 20, which is something this billionaire Peter Thiel, the PayPal guy, he launched a program to try to kind of experiment with like, what if we didn't go to college, but we gave these, these talented young kids a grant of $100,000 come out to Silicon Valley and you know, there were a lot of problems with how the program was implemented. For one thing, most of the kids went back to school anyway. So it's just like they took a year out from Yale or Harvard and then went back. So they kind of got their cake and ate it too. But, um, you know, for, for me at the time, I was from South Carolina originally growing up. So I didn't know what to expect. And I got to the to Cambridge, Massachusetts. And, you, you know, you psych yourself out anyway when you're there because you're convinced everybody else must be a genius or something. And then it turns out it's just like so many other things in life. It's kind of this Wizard of Oz thing, or there's this person behind the curtain, there's a yep. little midget standing on a box or something, right? But, you know, for what struck me about it was it, at the time it was a $20 billion endowment. Now it's like $40 billion obscene. So you could have this post-scarcity kind of environment where everybody is secure, taken care of. And instead, it's like everybody's fighting over scraps and you're just trying to get to the next rung on this ladder where either med school, law school, or a few of the same investment banks, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, or these stupid consulting firms of McKinsey and Bain Capital, which are considered the whatever blue chip. Mm-hmm. So you can do that rotation and then come back to the MBA in a couple of years after work experience and then just... Back. So it's like, well, these people are completely stunted is what I realized because yep. everybody was just kind of going in lockstep. It was yep. the same thing. There was no independent thinking like I thought it was going to be because I'd grown up around whatever normies and stuff where I felt like I didn't fit in in high school. Mm-hmm. So I thought I was going to finally um, become, you know, somehow finding my place. Or something. But And there were some very smart people, but it's all like in spite of Harvard, not because of it. Right. So there is no structure, anything yep. set up to help people flourish. It instead kind of tends to herd everyone towards the same socialization of these uh, elite interests, these shared interests in the status quo power structure system. Um, so by the time I graduated, I kind of had a nervous breakdown almost or a total depression coming out of that feeling like I'd wasted my life. Like, how did I 
come to this place. I'm 22 years old. I'm miserable. I don't know what to do because I hate the system. I don't want to go back and work for so, McKenzie or, you know, and go do I'm this. Gonna, I'm going to interrupt you real quick. You actually, you, so you did graduate from Harvard then. Uh, sorry. Say again. Oh, I said you did graduate from Harvard then. Yeah. 2004. Oh, okay. Sorry. I didn't, I didn't catch that part when we were speaking at the conference earlier. So yeah. Okay. I probably should have dropped out earlier. But... Yeah. No, I mean, you're, you're preaching about all the things that are wrong with the, with the current financial system. You know, you, I worked in corporate America and you're just trying to climb that ladder. It doesn't matter whose face you have to step on, whose fingers below you are on the next rung that you're crushing and you're knocking off, you're kicking them in the face, you're kicking them off the, because it's all about the wrong incentives, you know, the, the delusion and illusion of quote unquote money, which not that many people even know the definition of money. It's not about what's in the best interest of humanity. What's in the best interest of you and I, it's about the, this will make you happy. And this is, you know, money and control and power. And that's what they're like, the people in the elite schools that you're talking about, that's what they're grooming them for is that and they, it's like the next generation of, of, you know, the people at the top of the pyramid, not like, hey, we have the resources, we have the AI, we have all of this technology that can actually raise the quality of life for everyone on planet Earth. But instead, the, these kind of systems and these kind of things set up in our society do the opposite. And it's meant to groom the very pinnacle, the very few to control and have power and dominion over the rest of the people at the bottom of the pyramid, which is not right, you know? And it's just, I can't think of one system, I mean, name a system, education, law, politics. I mean, you could just they're go all on and corrupted. on and on. And they're, they're all, all corrupted. They're, they're all, all fucked, compromised. You know, and they're not going to be fixed. So we need to create new systems. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to just jam in there and, and interject, but yeah, I mean, right. you're preaching to the choir. It's, it's the shit's broken. Yeah. But there's a lot of people that need to hear this. I mean, we, we've talked about this and we talk about this at the conference. We talk about it at our meetups, but it's good you're here, Joseph, because this brings it to other people that may hear this podcast who, who feel the same way and don't know which way to turn. So this is how we start by taking it back is by trying to educate the people around us. Yeah, absolutely. And this is how we... Uh build like you said jed on the platform of whatever we exchange ideas and we go oh yeah uh jed has some great things to say and he might help the way you know i'm a little bit off and he gets me back here where we can actually build on this great foundation which isn't a corruptible money like the current system and we can get back on track as a society now instead of so far off where uh humanity doesn't matter anymore you know like the, the value of a human life is just insignificant, you know, and that's, that's horrible. There's no such thing as love in that system. And to me, you know, that's one of the things that I rarely hear Bitcoin defined as is love. But to me, it's the closest money of love because it truly cares. There's truth there. There's, there's responsibility. There's accountability. There's no way to manipulate it through a third party. There's no centralized entity that can man manipulate it. So with that solid foundation, then we are able to fix some of these systems based upon that. And, and I want to do my part. And so even if it is just connecting a, a food supply system locally, like let's start with the small things and build on these blocks and build from there and build a better tomorrow for, you know, it's, it's probably not going to be in our lifetimes, but maybe our, you know, ancestors, or I mean, our, uh, our kids, our offspring, like maybe two generations from now will reap the benefits of it. Cause right now we're at a crazy apex where we could tip, Either way, we could go to where we annihilate ourselves as a human race by blowing ourselves up with nuclear weapons, or we could starve 90% of the Earth's population. I mean, we're really close to some insanity. The way the decisions we're making as humans with just energy, for example, or just our food supplies, like it's, it's insanity. Like who in their right minds are running the country or running the world that are making these stupid decisions? You know, it doesn't make any sense. I'll get off my soapbox now. All right. Well, if you look at the people making these decisions, none of them are economists. None of them are doctors. They're career politicians. And that's the problem. We need to get the career politicians out and get people who really know what's going on in there. Well, You know what? When we have the incentives so misaligned like we do now, here's a great example. I don't think I've ever stepped into a, a bar like Wednesday night at the conference down there where 
everybody that I talked to seemed like their IQ was through the charts. I go to the conference. I can't think of one person that I talked to where I didn't feel like <laughs> I was the dumbest person in the room. Let's just put it that way. Like I was really just sitting in there just going like, I am not a smart man. Right. I, I felt the same way. Is. You know what I mean? Because I was just like, holy shit. Like even like Joseph, meeting Joseph. And I'm like, you know, he's telling me about um, <laughs> artificial intelligence. He's telling me about the latest breakthroughs on health and pharmaceuticals and how close we are to, you know, people were freezing their heads because, you know, eventually we can, you know, maybe revive these things. Like it was just, it was going deep. It was like definitely bordering on what I could actually comprehend. And like, I was having a hard time even... I was super curious because I'm like, oh shit, I didn't, I did not know that. Like, and then I was, I was being led because I was like, I had other questions and whatnot. And we were, you know, you name it, we were like, oh, injecting H, you know, human growth hormone into and blah 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 blah, and this is synthetic now, and you don't need to extract it out of there. And we, stem cells, and like we were going deep. And I was just like, one of those things where it's like, but but then again, there was Joseph's fucking everywhere in there. And and this is just another yeah. example of our fucking society is topsy turvy. We have fucking fools making the fucking decisions in our country, and yet we have people who are going, where's my place in the world? Guess what? If this system was right, your place would be up here making the decisions because that's what that's how your brain works. Like you, jo people like Joseph should be making like these medical kinds of decisions. For humanity, not some jackass well, who's worried about a peer review and that has nothing to do with what's what the facts are. It, it well, has to yeah, do with so the money. Go ahead. I think again. So I overcome really a, an anarchist, which is people don't really understand anarchism, because it has this connotation of chaos or disorder. Right. But it's actually a, a form of organization just one in which there is no deference to authority right a decentralized so form yeah you don't you don't delegate any you know final authority or agency to a um, an expert or a, you know person above you in the hierarchy um and again most of our interactions are a form of anarchy so it's incorrect to think that this is some kind of anomaly because most social engagements and a group of friends planning to, again, again it, it happens outside of a corporation and you, you don't have to call a called order robert's rules of order with the chairman or whatever you, you just spontaneously coordinate together and whoever wants to come you know throw the party you know it's like doing a picnic or a potluck most relationships are essentially anarchic if they're voluntary and you're, you know, forming a, um, you know, so the, I mean, it goes deep, right? And so what really is un unnatural is the state. That is not a form of organization that has ever historically been um, very sustainable. Most um, societies were a form of tribal sort of stateless society. And what we're talking about in terms of like the nation state that really only goes back to around like, Treaty of Peace of Westphalia in 1648, uh, uh, kind of the end of the Thirty Years' War. Um, that's when these modern kind of integrated nation states began to take shape, and it's even more, you know, recent than that in terms of, you know, the 20th century is the kind of first era of total war where you had World War One and World War Two, where these. But I mean, it used to be that the king and uh, nobles all checked each other's power because you had the king who was up here but you also had the church who was colluding with the monarchs to kind of prop each other up and the king got the legitimacy from the church was saying that the king is divine but if the baron and the duke didn't like it because he's taxing them too much he'll push back against the king and then you had your peasants down here the serfs so it was a lot more decentralized actually in the feudal system um so there's nothing inevitable about this system of government that we have now. Um, and I am really, for people just kind of making decisions for themselves, um, where no one can compel any uh, sort of compliance or following it, right? So you, you would just not have uh, entities uh, and then bureaucrats like Fauci or whoever there, because they would simply be, uh, you know, it would be a much more decentralized uh, way that expertise 
and um, and things were recognized. It would be uh, kind of organically flowing where people would gain credibility on some set of topics, you know, once they've demonstrated a track record. And but you would always have to um, explain yourself more. And in the current system, there isn't that accountability because everything's obfuscated by jargon and kind of internal rituals that different uh, classes of professionals all erect in order to wall off their domain. And you can learn to read uh, the primary journals and scientific articles. After a while, you pick up enough to be proficient as a layperson. Um, unfortunately, the incentives in this system is such that it's impossible to criticize it, whether it's the prevailing theory on Alzheimer's, which has been you know, known for like 30 years to have huge problems, this beta amyloid plaques theory, but all papers, all publications, everything has been around that. So it's been impossible to ever shake free of that paradigm because you only get cited if you're publishing on this particular target. And it turns out there's fraud that's reviewed every like 10 years. So none of this is surprising, like it blows up periodically and the whole edifice is revealed to have been like false or a dead end. And unfortunately, science has become more and more corporatized and entrenched. And it wasn't like that. The history of science, you know, 400 years going back to the 1600s originally was different gentlemen scholars because you had to be rich to own a, a telescope. Only the nobles and the Royal Society, right? So Francis Bacon and these, as they kind of started modern science as we think of it and created these institutions. Uh, but, you know, Ben Franklin and other early pioneers in the United States were able to make a great number of contributions. Um, and again, you used to, no one had books, so only the wealthy could get private tutors and have access to a private library. And so we did democratize that through the printing press um, and scientific instrumentation has become cheaper in some fields but then also expensive in others so only a few groups can do particle physics and get time on the particle accelerator the hubble and now the web telescope right so uh, again it all depends sort of on these costs of capital goods but also the systems that we've set up where we only credential these certain kinds of people and we basically anointed them much more like priests it can't be challenged um, and that's how you get this situation with like a Fauci and then even Francis Collins who previously was a good you know leader in public health and all these years but they really kind of just sunk their legacy by doing this and covering up stuff and pushing punishing dissent because they were a lot of very well credentialed other epidemiologists and physicians, people that did release this Barrington Declaration letter. I mean, these were not fringe people, but also, you know, members of the academy and, and the establishment, if you will, at, at Stanford and other places who were just all violently punished, you know, seriously punished and intimidated for daring to go against the slightest you know, thing of the orthodoxy, even while the establishment kept flip-flopping on basic things like masks, saying first, no, don't get a mask, and then going back the other way and saying wear three masks. So all the credibility has been torn to shreds. It's going to be very hard to build these new epistemological sort of um, institutions that could be distributed and decentralized in a way that we can move everybody onto that rather than just, you know, not again, going the conspiracy theory direction where you're going to get your advice from Alex Jones or whatever, mm -hmm. which is the opposite direction. Right. But, um, you know, so again, it's like, I would say in my ideal system, it wouldn't be that I would be making policy choice for people or more like, okay, here's what I'm doing. This is what I think works. So I think this is bullshit. Watch out for what so-and-so is saying. This guru over here is saying this thing, but probably that they have an agenda because they're getting a kickback or a sponsorship from this thing they're promoting, right? On their podcast or whatever. So you always have to do truth in advertising and you got to look at where everyone has an incentive. We all have incentives. Maybe we're not aware of our incentives, but in the current 
system that's totally not transparent. It's all covered up and hidden. Whereas at least in, even in some of these annoying influencer personalities, I mean, they're bullshit. They'll promote stuff like an energy drink. There was one kind of a funny exchange recently where Logan Paul is this huge YouTuber influencer mm -hmm. came out with this energy drink um, formula. And of course, he's not the one. He didn't design that at all. He right. was just doing the video on it, showing his label. And then another guy who's the more of a serious biohacker, bodybuilder personality, he does all these videos explaining different protocols and drug usage and what celebrities are probably using for getting ready for movies and what athletes are using. Anyway, he did a takedown on his channel on YouTube explaining why I, this is a BS energy drink. It's not that, you know, they're hyping up, oh, but here's the existing other brands. And, you know, uh, so that, that guy's name, More Plates, More Dates, is that guy's channel. I like him. Yeah, so you've yeah. seen his stuff. He yep, did a More Plates, More Dates. Rogan. So I think in the future of this kind of anarchic system, mm. you'll have all sorts of voices and different channels and things like this. There right. will no longer be a uh, chief, you know, centralized, yeah, the head, of the, yeah. head of the NIH and the head of the CDC. You can see it's in the name Center right. for Disease Control. You can't have a center that it's got to be a distributed network of, of different local public health departments still have a role to play. But there should not be these one agency setting policy for everyone. You saw that from the beginning in the pandemic, how if it had been left more for the states and they can adjust their policies on the ground. And then it just got totally just clown world, you know, right. the whole thing yeah. from like week to week. Um, so it doesn't, it's not a good sign for the next thing that. For sure. So the incentives you know, really would be whatever is in the best interest of humanity. So if it's like curing cancer, we would be all about curing cancer as opposed to making money for the pharmaceutical company, making money for whatever it is drug that we're issuing. And that would come because the power and the money lie in the masses of, of, of everyone. And that's where the consensus comes from is, hey, uh, you know, there's cancer in the, in the society, in the people, in where the power is. Therefore, the incentive goes to let's fix this problem, which is finding a cure to cancer, not, hey, we have this miracle drug that we're making all this money off of. Therefore, we can, you know, invent studies or create studies that support our theory, even though we, the people, we don't even, we can't even find truth anymore. I mean, you go look at a, at a you know, whatever is it, legal system, you can get a forensic psychologist on one side of the equation and a forensic psychologist on the other to say two completely different things. And yet they're the same expert. And it's not because, you know, like, obviously there's one of them is more right, but we, we never know because it's all about the money. They paid these guys a lot of money to say whatever they want. And the same thing is coming out with journals, like you said, or with, you know, pharmaceutical companies that are putting out this drug. They're, they're, funding this this uh, research to inevitably come up with this conclusion. And so of course it's gonna be slanted in that direction. So what you're saying is, hey, we need to turn this thing on its head. We don't need you as an expert. We need the people to speak, which is, hey, uh, we're trying to cure this and we actually want a drug or whatever it is or a therapy that will fix this thing. Is that, that's kind of where you're going with that, correct? Well, there's a bunch of like elements to this. I mean, the reason, the current system is very slow, expensive to create a drug because then you market it to everybody and it's a blockbuster model. Whereas the future of medicine is gonna all be precision, personalized individual treatments. And then at that point, you don't regulate it in the same way because you're not gonna sell this for mass market consumption. It will be more like, we're gonna have to validate things at the kind of a protocol level, so to speak. Um, and by that, I mean, it, this term is slightly different, like the recipe, um, you know, in medicine, they use the, the word a little bit differently, right? So I think the idea would be in the future, you're going to provisionally approve things, meaning we're not warranting yet that it's going to be efficacious for anyone because most drugs don't work for most people, even the most successful selling drugs from Viagra to, um, you know, <clears throat> to Lexapro, you know, Prozac, whatever, barely worked for like 30% of patients that took it for depression. 
So what we need to do is to become more humble about this and just say, we're gonna basically focus on safety studies and toxicology and say we can get some pretty good data on that and what the lethal dose is. Um, but then after that, leave this to the physicians and the patients to kind of decide on their own treatment and what they're gonna use and not, uh, but you know, that's also been co-opted by the farm industry pretty much has bought out all the physicians because they push the, the literature on them. It's basically sales material and to push them and encourage them to prescribe these drugs because then right. they all get kind of a kickback on it. So there's a long way to wring out these bad incentives in the system. Oh, wow. Um, back to, you know, the idea of the, the law is another thing. We're gonna have to fundamentally reboot legal systems because mm. it's gotten so litigious and right. so broken that right. you're never going to be able to have a realistic system unless we move to what's this thing called polycentric law is the term where you could have multiple competing service providers for conflict resolution. So, and this is in historically, there has been this commercial law where merchants kind of chose their own private, uh, dispute resolution mechanisms and whoever gets a reputation for fairness, but also cost being able to settle it without these crazy legal fees. Eventually that one proliferates, but you have to have competition. You can't just have one monopoly uh, provider. So there's some interesting, there's a lot that can happen with Bitcoin there. Uh, there's a guy you may want to look up as a lawyer that's written a few pieces and a blog and a newsletter on this called Aaron Daniel. And he has, this piece about what happens to, to litigation and torts stuff when everybody's holding Bitcoin because you can't recover the keys from someone. So how do you get damages if we're all on a Bitcoin standard? And so I think the answer is something like, if we agree to use this city as our uh, legal services, we all stake this amount of Bitcoin mm. in a multi-sig wallet. And that way, if I cause an accident to somebody um, I can be held in accountable in that zone and I would forfeit my Bitcoin that I've staked. So if you want to mm -hmm. benefit from the legal protections of this zone, yeah, then you've got to sign, you know, your thing, your private keys. And if you're a good citizen of that, maybe, you know, you never have anybody go against you. You never have a claim go against you, right? Then maybe yeah. you you get it cheaper over and time. The, if you're a bad one, you have to insure extra over time because yeah. you're a bad actor. And there's credibility given similar to like peer reviews in like an Amazon seller or a Airbnb rating or something like that, where actually the power is coming from the voice of the masses versus a few at, at the top, something like right, that, right? I mean, you, your point about like the expert witnesses, yeah. our system is not set up in a way to get at the truth or right. to really have reconciliation. It's just set up as a adversarial type of justice and not all legal systems mm. are set up that way. There's this other tradition of dispute resolution where you delegate to an elder in the community and you have these circles. And if you can't agree on that and you appeal up to the next one, but it's right. much more focused on arbitration and right. dispute resolution between like, the families or whatnot. Whereas yeah. now we've got either this crazy idea of where the state is going to prosecute the public interest, even if there's like no survivors to the family, mm. let's say if somebody murders somebody, there's, there's no longer a concrete set of victims left. So it's like, what purpose does it punishing this person serve? It's, it's really all about, you know, the, so this is kind of a legal fiction of the public interest, right? And so huh. in a, in the future legal systems, we could see that it would much more be just private parties going against you. We no longer have the state that we empower to prosecute anyone for the public interest. I mean, no yeah. drug crimes because we don't recognize that as a category where there's a public interest at stake. Right. So we could eliminate like 90% of legal proceedings stuff. It's mostly all waste and bloat. And then, you know, rarely would things have to rise to the level of that uh, legal dispute. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it hits home to me because uh, I've had dealings with the legal system. Plus, I was married. Wife number three was a lawyer. So it, it, it's almost like um, they bring that whole life home with them because they're it's all about manipulation and definition of words and 
uh, blurring truths and it, it be, and, and then it's especially when that's involved in your personal life it just blow it's like you're not even in reality anymore you're in this uh external world of like mind fuckery where it's just and, and, that, and that seems where a lot of the current legal system dwells you know and I'm, i i don't i'm thankfully i'm not a part of that anymore because you know that was divorce number three but it just it's delusional man it's not it's not it doesn't operate within that reality like you were defining earlier like you know caveman days and we can actually take a lot of our current life and go back there and go okay in order to eat you need to contribute in some way it's like jim's that gathers the firewood you know betsy cooks he's in charge of getting the meat and really we still need to in the in our current society we still need to provide this value to other citizens you know but a lot of the time well, we just uh, go ahead yes yeah, so just uh, one point on that so oh, i'm go. actually i actually think there's more than enough abundance and productive capacity to go around and then some um so there's these interesting movements that have happened on reddit called anti-work you probably saw the poor guy they went on fox news something they kind of picked him apart he was like a loser dog walker guy so he uh -huh. wasn't a great representative of this but right uh, and then in china it's called lying flat um or oh, let yeah. it rot yep. entire generations of young chinese are just like refusing to do this because they see it's a rat race treadmill where you never get anywhere right so i would say there's more than enough material technological know-how to basically if we had to you could pay millions of people to stay at home just as long as you stopped sam bankman fried and these other super parasites mm -hmm. wrecking everything right. every few decades right yeah yeah bernie madoff you got the galoons warren buffett and bill gates these horrible bad actors so it's not that there's this problem of freeloaders. People, if anything, these incels and people in the basement are mostly harmless. It's kind of a tragedy for them that they're sitting home and jacking off or whatever. But most of the time, they're harmless. They're not out there shooting up the school, although that does happen. In time right. time. So I don't buy into this. I've always pushed back against this bullshit, like Protestant work ethic thing, because yeah. that's a lie that rich people say rich people never work so if you look right. at this like the high wealthy people don't actually do labor but they just try to tell everybody else in the middle class that you're supposed to have this ethic of hustling and working and busting your ass and it's all kind of a farce because right. where, where does wealth come from it's ownership of assets not from labor so you never really get anywhere or get ahead by just laboring and selling your time everybody that's built wealth has had ownership of something whether it's land or other capital tools of production right and so in order to fix this uh, you know the idea hopefully of bitcoin is that we get this asset in the hands of everybody and then you have something even if it's not a directly productive asset because it's not giving cash flows whatever it's capturing the upside of everything that's done in any given year so all yeah. productivity gains of any other invention and energy uh, increasing harnessing more energy all that accrues to bitcoin eventually and acts like this permanent, you know, savings account that accretes value I, to it. I didn't want, uh, I don't want to come off as not agreeing with you 100%, because if you listen to other podcasts I've done, I spew the same thing saying, especially with where we are as far as technology, uh, you know, robotics, AI, uh, farming, uh, with, with all the advancements that we've had, uh, the value that I'm talking about contributing even is like um, investing time in your children's lives and uh, providing art or things you're passionate about because there's no reason that you need to be working 40 plus hours a week with where we are. If you actually look and see where the wealth is located in the worldwide, it's in like the vast amount of wealth is in a small fraction of the hands of of the world and that's that shouldn't be we should be in a world where we are right now as far as technology and where the quality of everyone's life should be much much higher than it is so i definitely agree with you so if i came off thinking you know you thinking like oh everybody needs to go out there and work by the well, sword of their no, brow and everything else that's I'm not where i was going with that at all yeah there's a there's a lot of in the bitcoin community certain right wing or more on the right sort of elements and there's a lot in the austrian school of economics stuff which kind of has a more narrow view of 
of humanity and economics. So the problem with this idea, they'll say something like, you know, people will always retort, why don't you get a job, right? But right. it's kind of a stupid criticism to make because I most agree. jobs suck. Yeah, and oh, so you're not needing, you're not being really engaging with it. These people are not going to get a job. First of all, there's not really any good jobs. Maybe there's some horrible job available. I right? So we're not solving this problem of how do we automate the undesirable jobs in the world. It's yeah. just not realistic to tell all these people that are, are fed up with the system, uh, why don't you get a job? You're not right. engaging with their legitimate criticisms of this system. Yes. Um, and the other thing I'd say, you know, I'm not advocating like redistributing resources, trying to take from the rich. I 100% agree. The poor, right? I think this is yep. something that also gets people confused about or yep. like advocating socialism or something. The, the point is that under Bitcoin, Bitcoin standard, there are no billionaires because that cannot happen. It cannot accumulate massive choke points on resources. Yeah. Something like Bill Gates is a freak show anomaly. It would never happen under a functioning economy with competitive markets. You look at the history of billionaires, like the first ever billionaire is like Rockefeller. It did not happen. No one had ever accumulated a billion of, of monetary wealth before his monopoly in the early 1900s. Um, before that, you had dynasties and, and the pharaohs and kings that commanded, you know, the resources of their entire society was kind of held by the royal family. But, but you know, this modern idea of a billionaire is very recent and also driven by inflation because it, right. you know, it used to be only a few million dollars was equivalent to billion in purchasing yeah. power now, right? Mm -hmm. So under Bitcoin, it prevents, it changes so many things to where that wealth, that money can never be double spent in the way right. that the fiat yep. money can be recycled back in so that they basically do buybacks. They're essentially buying back their own stock. They're pumping the economy and grabbing up more hard assets. That's why Bill Gates and these guys can do this with their nonprofit. They can launder their reputation and their money tax-free into their foundation and do these side deals that let them basically buy up the farmland. And they're very smart in what they're doing. Yeah. They're buying up all the real scarce fixed assets. So they end up owning all that mm -hmm. while the rest of us have nothing, right? Whereas under Bitcoin, that is basically gone forever. Once you've spent it and circulated it into the economy, you can't buy back in except at a higher price. Usually you're going to buy back your sats, your satoshis a couple of years later. It's a much higher conversion rate to get it back. So over time, that means it always distributes and percolates out through the world. It's like I've made some other posts on Facebook about this, trying to explain why it wasn't unfair, why the distribution of, of Bitcoin is not uh, problem of inequality because that mathematically it's guaranteed to continue to spread out because people lose their keys. You can't lock it. You can't successfully usually hoard it in the way that people pass down their wealth to different dynasties, mm -hmm. you know, and their worthless kids usually, you know, dissipated after the second generation. Right. right? So the, the idea is that it's like you're on this surface of the earth has different elevations. You've got this peak here, the, the big mountaintop, but eventually as you continue pouring the Bitcoin down on the program for 140 years at, uh, you know, 2140, yeah. the water hits the top first of whoever was like up here climbing the mountaintop, trying to understand Bitcoin first is grabbing some of it. As yep. It's flowing down here, but it continues to saturate. Trickle planet down. Earth. Yeah. And eventually it's like this sea that's rising up, like sea level is rising or worried about global warming. So eventually like the Bitcoin is up like here and everyone is floating on this, you know, Bitcoin ocean where we've all been lifted up to this thing and, and we're all on top of the stable Bitcoin standard, which is, you know, this planetary wealth. Yeah. Uh, even if it was up here first, it flows down and, basically evens up. You, you know, another thing I like about that, and I can even use your analogy, um, you were talking about the people towards the top of the mountain being, you know, earlier Bitcoin adopters. And one thing that I've seen that actually really is, is a good look for the future is that from what I've seen of these people, and it was definitely echoed in, in the people that I encountered down at the Pacific Bitcoin conference, was that there's some good people in there. So unlike uh, right now where a lot of wealth concentration is, it's, you know, self-centered and self-serving 
things. A lot of the people that I encountered in these early Bitcoin adopters, the people at the top of this mountain that are some of the ones who, who I mean, inevitably, they're going to end up with a, a little bit bigger of a stack. But like you said, I agree with that because this is something that I've pondered too and thought, well, what what about how this is you know, allocated? And what if, yeah, all these people started out great, but meeting these first adopters it's huge because I'm like, man, that is where we want some, because it's going to represent power at some point, you know, it's going to represent like, Hey, you know what? He has a little bit more resources or a little bit more value and he will be able to wield that. And, and I'm really happy with where that's going because these people for the most part, I know it's generalizing, but like I said, like 90% of the hands I shook down there, there were some good hearted people in there. So I kind of like that analogy. And I like the, the early adopter crowd, because I mean, I'm, I'm definitely of the same mindset as them. And we're thinking in terms like you're thinking like, Hey, things are screwed up, man. Like we need to do our own reset and we need to have our own revolution because the way we're going, we're going to be society's screwed. Humanity's not going to be uh, interstellar interplanetary we're going to be toast well before we get burned up by our own sun you know what i mean so i i really love that analogy and i really you know i just wanted to build on that part about hey those guys at the top of the mountain from what i've seen there are some good people there absolutely i concur with everything you said too about you know the distribution of wealth and you won't have that you know huge you know uh sums of bitcoin with one person right because they're going to have to distribute that as well. They're going to have to be spending that. They're going to have to be paying in that. You're not going to have inflation that's going to allow them to hoard that and then more Bitcoin are coming on, right? It's going to be a finite supply. They may accumulate a lot of Bitcoin, but they're also going to be spending a lot of Bitcoin because it's a finite amount. So they're going to have to put that to work. It's not that they're going to be getting free money from the government that they're going to put to work, right? Yeah. I mean, I've been trying to model some of this out and it's very hard to think in terms of that because we are so stuck with inflation for all of our lives mm -hmm. and you would have you know something like this concept of deflation adjusted bitcoin instead right. of inflation adjusted dollars yeah so such that you know 10 bitcoin today would be equivalent to one bitcoin 10 years from now mm -hmm. so you're, you're looking at the value of your house and it's going to keep dropping in Satoshi terms, but staying constant or whatever in real nominal terms. And then so you can realize, you know, I can spend nine Bitcoin and I can spend one Bitcoin a year, whatever. But then 10 years from now, I'll still have the same wealth that yeah. I had yep. holding one going now that, that I did in 2020 with 10. And now it's the year 2030 and my, my one Bitcoin. Right. And so you could get in, and it really starts to invert. It's, yeah. yeah. It's, it's hilarious how we calculate everything. Because it's, it's like the opposite of what we grew up as, too. Because we all see, like, oh, grandpa used to spend a quarter on a hamburger and da 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 da. It'll be super funny when this happens because it'll be the opposite. It'll be like, we used to spend 20 bucks on it or, you know, 20, 20,000 sats on a hamburger. And now we play 20 sats for a hamburger. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's going to yeah. be hilarious because it's going to be flip-flopped. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And once that sets in, it'll change. Uh, everybody calculates risk and your kind of baseline risk taking and yeah. just, yeah, so many effects on human nature and <laughs> behavior well we uh we better start i mean i still wanted yeah. to talk about the bitcoin yeah. conference and everything else but uh sure. we have a um bitcoin meetup tonight that we need okay. to get ready what's that yeah i'm gonna run out of battery anyway oh, okay here, so. well that's good okay. because this has been so amazing i think we definitely need to do it again and then um if we want to we can talk about the pacific bitcoin conference but hey we met there so just even if all we did was just meet you there it was worth it so uh, but we didn't we met a lot of really cool people but uh and we also are we're going to be tuning in uh live with one of our other plebs who's uh down in um el Salvador. I was going to say Alzante, but I don't think he's there. I think he's in the capital. And he's speaking at the uh, Bitcoin conference down there. So we're going to get a live report tonight from him via Zoom. So we're looking forward to that. But uh, I need to get out of my pajamas and uh, get ready to go <laughs> do the uh, do that. But man, what a what a I mean, 
<laughs> I could just sit around and talk to other great Bitcoin mines all day. And, it, and mm -hmm. it's great too, because this is how we build. And this is how we're like, I was looking around the conference and just going, man, this is the forefathers of tomorrow right here. You know, <laughs> we're not sitting around writing a, well, we are, we are writing our own independence right now. You know, we're writing a new constitution for tomorrow. And, we're, and this is how we're doing it. You know, like conversation Absolutely. like these, we're going to pick a nugget of truth out of it. And it's going to get passed down the line and, and based on that foundation of a solid money, which we talked about in this conversation, there'll be building blocks, you know, and, and on those will be like uh, the, the beef initiative, like we're talking about, like, hey, guess what? You know what? You can bypass all this BS, go straight to the producer. And guess what? You can exchange value using this new value keeping system, you know, this new mm -hmm. technology, this new tool for mankind you know we don't want to make it a cult or orange pill weirdness it's it's basically just a tool for mankind you know it's that simple so anyway mm -hmm. i think we better wrap it up and uh let's definitely do this again because it's like honestly some of these concepts like are just mind fucking for me because i'm just <sighs> trying to yeah we could grasp go it into all. it for we could go into it for hours or even yeah. days yeah for sure so yeah i'd like to all say right, man it was good meeting you joseph Oh, I, I think we met a, I think we met a lifelong friend. Oh, without <laughs> a doubt. So. Yeah, no, I'm All right, I'm guys, stoked, thanks man. for having me. All right, on. Man. I'll be in touch soon. Sounds good, man. Thank All you, right. Joseph. Take it easy. Have a good night. Have a good night.